0: When we think of hoisting the sails and catching the wind of the Spirit, we of course think about moving forward. And that's what we've been doing over these last several weeks as we have been uh, thinking about those things that the church has historically called the spiritual disciplines. Those ways and means by which we cooperate with the Holy Spirit of God in this journey of being transformed into His image gradually from glory to glory. We have looked at worship our response to God's divine initiative in all aspects of life. We've looked at the critical role of Scripture and listening to the voice of God as He directs us. We've looked at the the discipline of study and reading, going deeper into that text to understand the mind of God and love God with our minds. And then we looked at the whole area of prayer, our communion with God, and learn to pray like Christ taught us to pray. But there are times in this journey of moving forward when we find ourselves going backward. When we do things and live in ways that are unlike Jesus. Instead of demonstrating the fruit of love, we behave in ways that are selfish and self-serving. Instead of the fruit of joy, we find ourselves grumbling and are unthankful. Instead of peace and making peace, we find ourselves creating conflict. And refusing reconciliation. Instead of patience. We find ourselves exploding in impatience. Instead of worshipping the living God. We tend to look upon created things. For satisfaction. And even make choices on that basis. Instead of listening to the voice of God. In scripture we listen to the voices of people around us. Sometimes not so wise. And we begin to live along those lines. Instead of loving God with our minds. We not only Waste time in other things we positively put into our minds things that are actually, or actively put into our minds things that are hurtful and damaging and sinful. And instead of prayer, we often choose to go through life defiantly and deliberately choosing to trust in ourselves. What then? How do we go forward when we've been going backward? That brings us to a very important spiritual discipline called confession. That I want to talk about. Because confession is the means by which we begin to move forward again when we've discovered we've been moving backwards. We kind of understand the dictionary meaning of the word. But this morning, what I want to do is to drill down a lot more and <clears throat> dig a lot deeper to get a much more thorough understanding of what confession really is. Because it is not just important that we confess, but that we confess appropriately in such a way that it actually makes us move forward rather than affirm us where we, write, where we are at this particular moment. I want to begin, first of all, by a little brief observation on what confession is not. Some of you might remember early in March, uh, Eliot Spitzer, the uh, governor of New York State, was uh, discovered in uh, uh, have having a long-term relationship with uh, high-priced call girls and having spent tens of thousands of dollars sometime in March. And I remember listening to his first public statement. This is how he opened. I had to scribble it fast, but it got the essence of it. For the past eight, these were his opening words. For the past eight years, as Attorney General of New York, I have attempted a vision of progressive politics. Politics is not about individuals, but the public good. I have done my best for New York and New York State. And then, after a few more words along that line, he said, "I have also acted in a way to hurt my family and violate obligations to my family." Now, instinctively, we realize something is not right with this. <laughs> Why does this come across as so hollow and insincere? Well, for several reasons, if you look at it. First of all, it is that there's a heavy investment in image management. Because he begins by talking about all the wonderful things he did for New York over the last nine years. Then there is a definite attempt to minimize what he did by saying, politics isn't about individuals, meaning what I do privately is really doesn't affect all the public good that I have done. And we hear that ad nauseum in the public realm. Thirdly, there are no specifics at all, just vague generalities about having violated obligations and hurt families. In fact, his very distraught wife was standing right next to him and he didn't even acknowledge her presence in that presentation. And then lastly, there was no indication that he was going to resign. And some of the commentators afterwards said, well, he's keeping that in his back pocket to have some kind of negotiating strategies when the present attorney general would come after him. You know, it's very hard to capture in one confession everything that is wrong about confessing. And Spitzer managed to do it better than anybody else I can think of. Because these confessions like this do not go to the heart of the problem and they do absolutely nothing about moving us forward. Really, this is more about regret and remorse at having got caught than anything that the Bible calls confession. I want you to keep that at one end of the spectrum as I want to take you now to, to to the other end of the spectrum. Of course you and I hopefully will never commit this kind of uh, violation of our obligations to God and to one another. But it does come nonetheless as a warning. To never be superficial and casual when it comes to the issue of dealing with confession in our lives. When we have violated God's laws and we have gone contrary to the scriptures. Probably the most thoroughly articulated confession in the entire Bible was written by a man who actually did worse than Spitzer. (laughs) But unlike this guy's confession, King David's confession serves as a model for all of us, even though we may not have been guilty of the kinds of sins that he committed. In case you don't remember the story, or some of you are new to this scriptures, King David was at the zenith of his power at that time. Israel was at her heights. And at that time, the Bible tells us, at a time when kings go to battle, he was lolling around on the roof of his palace. And he happened to see a beautiful woman that he desired. Being a king, he could get whatever he wanted and he did. He, he had sexual relationships with her. She got pregnant. When he discovered that, he arranged to have her husband killed on the battlefield and then he married her. That, that outstrips Spitzer by quite a lot. But then he was confronted. He was confronted by Nathan, the prophet of God. And the Bible tells us that for six days and nights, He was prostrate, eating nothing, wouldn't allow anything to come near him as he hammered things out with God. And while the rigorous connection is not there for us, there's a pretty good indication that this psalm that is the confession that we want to look at this morning probably came out of that time of intense anguish before God. And as we work our way through this, we are going to be struck not only by the sharp contrast with Spitzer's so-called confession, it will give us a model to follow in all those times when instead of being transformed into his image, by obedience we move backward, even though our our specific sins may be nowhere near as gross as the ones that characterize David's life. He begins with these words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. The first thing we see about this is a completely unvarnished acknowledgement of his sin. No euphemisms, no cover-ups like Spitzer did. And he, first of all, acknowledges the very fact of his sin. And he does it by calling it three different words. (laughs) You know, he doesn't minimize, he doesn't cover it up by calling it, oh, this is just my mistake, this is just my personality trait, you just caught me at a bad time, I was too tired, none of that stuff. He calls it what God calls it. First of all, he calls it transgression. And this particular word signifies rebellion against someone in authority, rebellion against a person. And so David sees his sin as having been an act of rebellion against God. Uh, He makes a remarkable statement in that prayer. He said, against you and you only have I sinned. Now think with me for a minute. What if you and I were the family of Bathsheba or Uriah that he got killed? (laughs) He says, but against you and you only have I sinned. That doesn't mean there aren't horizontal implications. But David is clear. The dominating feeling in his mind is, this is something that has happened between me and God and I need to deal with the Godward dimension of it as thoroughly as I need to. That is true of every sin. There may be horizontal fallouts. But the first and most dominating issue is that it is an act of treason and rebellion against God. Then he calls it iniquity. The word here is a word that carries a sense of liability for actions and a sense of guilt that comes because of that. And thirdly, he calls it sin. Uh, The the idea here is one of uh, something that is crooked. An offense against the standard. Not primarily an offense against the person But an offense against the standard, like after this building was built, if somebody brought a plumb line against the wall and they found the wall was crooked, that's offense against the standard. And he uses it to describe how he has deviated from a standard. So it is transgression against God, an act of rebellion against God. It is iniquity, it is something that has made him liable to consequences and rendered him in a state of guilt. And it is departure from a standard. It is crookedness as opposed to that which is straight. He is thorough and comprehensive in his acknowledgement of the fact of his sin. Then he deals with the depth of his sin. Not just the fact of his sin. He goes beyond the actions to the source. And he says, I was born in sin. In sin did my mother conceive me. He says he am sinful right from the time of birth. What David is acknowledging here is that deep down within, there is a fundamental flaw in his very existence. And it was his nature from the time that he was born. Th- this is what the Old Testament and the New Testament articulates as the doctrine of original sin. So that what is true of us as human beings. Far from being basically good people who do wrong things once in a while. There is, we are carrying from birth, each one of us, a fundamental inclination of our heart that is inclined to rebel against God in transgressions, that is committing actions as a result of that that make us liable and leave us guilty, and there is a basic crookedness in, in the very, very core of our being. And all of these specific sins flow out of this basic inclination of our heart. And you know, you only have to look at life carefully to see how true this is. I mentioned this to you before. Any one of us who's raised children, let me ask you a question. How hard do you have to work to teach them to lie? How hard do you have to teach them a temper tantrum? How hard do you have to work to teach them how to blame other people? I remember a time when we used to have our big extended family gatherings. It was right over here in the parsonage. Middle of the night, we were woken up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and we went up into the bathroom upstairs, and we saw toothpaste and lipstick all over the bathroom. And there were only two perpetrators. One was just over two and the other one was just under three. And one said the baby made me do it and the other one said the boy did it. Why is it that we do not have to teach our children to do what is wrong? Because it is inside them naturally. That's what comes up like dandelions and weeds. But we have to work very, very, very hard to teach the opposite. When it comes to adulthood, nothing changes. When those occasional uh, grids collapse that leave a whole eastern seaboard dark, what are the people afraid of? Looting and not looting by the crooks, although that's true. Looting by self-respectable, ordinarily citizens who would never dream of doing something, but they do things in the dark that they wouldn't do in the light. And we discover again, all over again, that the law simply controls external behavior. And so this is what Paul is, uh, David is acknowledging. There's something wrong with me, God, at the very core of my being, and this is what comes out as a result of that. Now, this doesn't mean mean there isn't any good in us. That's not the point. To understand this correctly, it is to confess the fact that this is, because it is at the core, there is no part of us that is unaffected by this basic inclination of our heart away from God. Then Paul, David is not finished yet. Now he has confessed the fact of his sin. He has confessed the depth of his sin. And now he confesses the defilement of his sin. And he cries out, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Now hyssop is not a 99.4% cream soap. Hyssop was actually a particular kind of plant That was used in Israel's worship. Many of her sacrifices for sin involved the shedding of blood. And the priests would often have to sprinkle this blood upon the altar and various things. And so they would make a brush out of the leaves of the hyssop plant and use it to sprinkle the blood. So when David is asking for cleansing with hyssop, he is using liturgical language. And basically what he is saying is, I have been rendered unfit for worship and service by my sin, God. And so I need you to cleanse me. I need you to wash. That's why words of cleansing and washing, they're all liturgical terminology. Similarly, when it says, hide your face from my sin, don't hide it from me. The face of God represented the tangible, immediate presence of God. And so David is acknowledging a sense of being defiled that has rendered him unfit for worship. And and you know, I can't think of another way to illustrate what that feels like. You may have had this experience. I did very clearly and I remember. It was a long, long time ago. I was walking along here one day and I guess thinking about other things that I normally do when I'm walking. And my next step, instead of landing on something firm and hard, landed on something squishy and soft. And within about three seconds, my nose confirmed for me what I had landed on. A sense of defilement immediately came over me. I rushed to the nearest patch of grass I could find furiously rubbed my feet several times but the nose continued to tell me that I was still defiled. And so I couldn't walk anymore. I was close enough to home. I came back home. I wouldn't step inside the house with that. I took my shoe off. I hopped on one leg all the way down to the basement holding this thing behind my back and the figure of the nose turned on the hot water tap as hot as I could get it and then finally I was able to rest and move on to something else. That's what a sense of defilement is like. David felt that his sin had done that to him and he could not worship God anymore. He was not fit for serving God and so he cries out, please cleanse me, wash me, wipe out these iniquities. They're all verbs of cleansing and washing and wiping. You see how thorough his confession is? It's an unvarnished acknowledgement of his sin. He confesses the fact of his sin. He calls it what God calls it. Transgression against God. Iniquity that has made him liable and guilty. And an act of crookedness against that which is straight. He then confesses the depth of his sin. That there's an internal inclination of his heart. That leans towards transgression, iniquity and sin. If left to itself. And then he has a sense of defilement. And he cries out to God to cleanse him from that. I mean, what a dramatic contrast between, for the past eight years, I have attempted a progressive political vision for the city of New York. What a difference in the opening words of these two people. Now, precisely because David was so thorough in the acknowledgement of his sin before God, he continues, and his expression of his desire for cleansing is also not superficial. It is also very thorough. In verses 10, 6, 10, and 12, he says, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Twice he talks about the inner parts and the inmost place. They are different words in the original language. The first time the word inner part is basically the Hebrew word for heart. And in the Old Testament scriptures, heart and spirit are used interchangeably to refer to that particular core of us that spills over and affects everything. Proverbs 4.23 captures it better when it says, guard your heart for out of it are the well springs of life. In other words, that which affects everything we do in life is what the Bible calls heart. And what David is saying is, you got to work your truth, God, because you desire it in the inmost part. And then he says, you teach me wisdom in the inmost place. The, the word here translated inmost is the word secret. It carries the idea of something that has been garrisoned and protected by many, many, in other words, some place that is hard to get at. And what David is saying is, because my problem is at the core of my being, the solution has to be at the core of my being, and I can't get at it, God. You, you have to do it, because you desire truth there, you desire wisdom at the central core of my being. I can't get to it, it's not an easy place to get to, nobody can do it, only you can do it, God. And then, just like he used three different words for sin, he's using three different words to describe what he wants God to do for him. First of all, he says, create in me a pure heart. In the Hebrew language, this is a word for bara which is used three times in the first chapter of Genesis at a very critical point. Each time God does something brand new, when he first creates something, when he first creates life, and when he first creates human beings, the word that is used for create is this word, bara. It carries with us an idea of radical newness. And so what David is using is he's using Genesis 1 language to say to God, just as at my physical birth. Something was wrong with me at the very core of my being that has naturally inclined me towards transgression, iniquity and sin. God, I want you to do a work of recreation. I want a new genesis inside of me. (laughs) Where you will create something supernatural in the core of my being whose natural disposition will be to go hard after God and to obey. He's asking for a radical change of direction and inclination by nature. It is the nature transformation that he's asking for. Create in me, do something new. The Hebrew had a different word when you simply remade something out of something else. That's not the word that he uses here. He wants radical newness. And then he says, renew a steadfast spirit within me. The word that is translated steadfast here is a word that talks about strengthening to be made capable for a task. I mean, David failed as a king. And I suspect what he was saying was, Lord, I am, I am your anointed servant. I am your divine representative on this earth. And I need you to strengthen me to be able to do this work as vice regent and king properly. So give me that steadfast spirit. And then thirdly, he says, grant me a willing spirit. <laughs> it is possible to be steadfast and do it all joylessly out of a sense of duty. <laughs> David says, I don't want that. I want it to be a willing spirit inside of me as well. So create something radically new in me whose spontaneous and natural intonations will be the exact opposite of that nature with which I was born. Make me capable and strong to do this work that you've called me to do in your kingdom to represent you. And by the way, change the very desires of my heart so that enjoy, I enjoy and delight in doing what you've caused me to do. So he's thorough in his request for his cleansing as well. And then, of course, he says, cast me not away, or don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Why does he pray that? If you you read the story of Israel, you will find that his predecessor was King Saul. And in King Saul's life, first the Spirit of God came upon Saul powerfully, and then the Bible tells us because of Saul's sins, God took the Spirit away from him, and an evil spirit came from him. So he knew that God could take his Spirit away from Saul. And he had promised David that he would never take his Spirit away from his son. But what about me? (laughs) You took it away from my predecessor, You promised you will never take your spirit away from my son, but God, what about me? Please, please do not take your Holy Spirit away from me because of what I've done. Because you see, a willing spirit and a steadfast spirit comes from the spirit. Who brooded who brooded over the chaos of creation in Genesis chapter one? The Spirit. The spirit of God brooded over the darkness. And David senses the darkness of his life. And he says, please don't take your spirit away from me. He is the one who will brood over this darkness. He is the one who will do this work of creation. See, Genesis 1 is what is dominating his mind as he is praying to God for this complete radical newness. That Every phrase in this prayer is rooted in the ideas of Genesis 1. So he wants God to do something brand new within his life. Now because he has been so thorough in dealing with his sin because he has been so thorough in asking for renewal within him he then is able to break through to a confidence concerning the future. He is confident of restoration to fruitful ministry. Psalm 51.13 Then I will teach transgressors your way (coughs) and sinners will turn back to you. I'm going to teach, he said. (laughs) I will. You will restore me to a position of usefulness in the kingdom of God. Remember how he began with a sense of defilement that had rendered him unfit for service and worship? He says, God, not only are you going to cleanse me, you are actually going to make me useful again in the kingdom of God once again. He's beginning to move forward now. This is how you move forward in those times when you move backward. You don't just jump to point number three. And what is he confident of? He says, I will teach transgressors your ways. I, he's not talking about ways in general. I think he's talking specifically about this way. <laughs> this way of getting back to God when we have sinned. grievously. Grievous. <clears throat> and did, has it occurred to you that that's what's happening this morning? I mean, David wrote these words 3,000 years ago. Did he have any idea that 3,000 years after he wrote these words... In a, little, in a city 5,000 miles away from where he wrote it. One pastor will be teaching his people the way back to God using David's words. How many millions of Christians have been taught by Psalm 51? Uh, how many people have been taught by Spitzer? We've forgotten in two weeks, two months. He's blown off the front page of the newspaper. I mean, both of these guys committed the same kind of sin. How come one man is still teaching us and the other man has just simply forgotten? It's because of the way they dealt with their sin. And this confidence has nothing to do with negotiation. Spitzer refused to resign because he wanted a negotiating tool in the back pocket. David does not rely on negotiation. Look at his opening words. Oh, by the way, he also says something else. He says, And sinners will turn back to you. Not only is he confident of restoration to ministry, he is confident of restoration to fruitfulness in ministry. I will teach and they will come back to you. That gave me great courage to step into this pulpit to preach this message. Not only will I teach, but God will move in your hearts and teach each one of us how to get back. To it. Then look at, the, look at his basis. Not negotiation, but grace. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you There was no attempt to self-justify. Basically, David said, God, you're the judge. And what I've done deserves judgment. And if you judged me and you refused to forgive me, you would be absolutely right in doing that. But I am going to call upon your unfailing love. It is an untranslatable word in the original language, in the Hebrew language, it is called hesed. And and probably the best way to communicate what hesed means, it is a loyalty to the terms of a covenant that a person has made with somebody else that comes from within their own nature. God has made a covenant with us in Jesus Christ. Sealed by his blood. God had made a special covenant with David. Totally by unconditional, everlasting, and unilateral covenants of grace. And he says, I am counting upon. Of course, you could wipe me out and you would be completely right. But I count on your unfailing grace and your mercy and your love. So it's not negotiation, but totally focused upon the grace of God that gives him the confidence to move forward. so this is true confession David style an unvarnished acknowledgement of his sin the fact of his sin the depth of his sin and the defilement of his sin the expression of a desire for radical cleansing and renewal for creating, renewing and granting a brand new work of grace <clears throat> and a confidence regarding restoration to fruitful ministry I want to draw this message to a close by asking a slightly different question now what triggers such confession? what makes this possible? Well in David's case he was sailing along merrily quite unaware, although it's hard to believe how you could be that way after adultery and murder When, until Nathan came to him gave him a very powerful parable that hooked him completely and then suddenly he said you're the man David, this is you we're talking about and he was precipitated into this, into this extended time of confession before God in the New Testament and I have these verses for you in your study guide um, The Apostle Paul does something very similar. He's writing to a whole congregation that needed to repent. And in in this case, the word the word of God came not through his preaching, but it came through a letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. And he moved them from the sorrow of this world that works death, which is Spitzer, to godly sorrow and repentance that leads to life, which is David. So in one case, it came by the spoken word of God. In the other case, it came by the written word of God through a letter. And that's usually the primary way in which we are, true confession is triggered in our lives. By an exposure to scripture. It might happen in a sermon where someone might be speaking on the problem of anger or lust or greed or whatever. It might happen tonight as you listen to Beth Moore talk about patience. Or it might happen during the week as it did to me as I was doing the workbook on patience. It might happen when you are doing your own studies. As I told you, these disciplines all interact with one another. I remember a time, it was October 19th, I won't forget that ever, October 1977. I I was still in Atomic Energy of Canada at that time. I hadn't joined the staff of this church. But I was an elder here, I was teaching an adult adult Sunday school class on the the book of Hebrews. Sham and her sister were singing, the kids were asleep, and, and I was sitting down studying. I was in the third chapter of the book of Hebrews when it talks about today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And God hit me over the head with a sledgehammer as he convicted me about the prayerlessness of my life. And from that day, the direction of my prayer life changed. I remember that. I remember that I was triggered. Confession of that prayerlessness in my life was triggered by an exposure to the word of God. It can happen in any one of several ways. So scripture is one very, very common way in which God triggers true confession. The other one, a second one is self-examination. When scripture confronts us with our sins, we are usually surprised by it. David was surprised. I was surprised. You might be surprised because you walk into church, you don't know what the Holy Spirit is going to do to you. But self-examination is something that we deliberately do. We deliberately put ourselves in the place where the Holy Spirit of God can use the scriptures to continue to test our heart. This is a voluntary... It's like when we go to the doctor. We do it in the physical realm. If you're you're wise, you go to the doctor once a year. The older you get, the more frequently you're supposed to go. You get all kinds of examinations, not because something is wrong, but to find out whether something is wrong. So self-examination is something we think is sane and helpful and normal, and we in fact chide people who don't do that. Doctors regularly scold their patients for not coming in for regular checkups. Why do we accept that as natural in the physical realm and walk at it in the spiritual realm? Self-examination is a very important part of spiritual health as well. Uh, This is where where the calendar year becomes so important. Every year during Lent, the church has set apart 40 days leading up to the Passion Week uh, where we focus upon the cross of Christ, where we examine our hearts very specifically. And that's why every year I try to give you some suggestions on how you might do that. So that's one time when God can trigger true confession in your life. Uh, This is where the litanies are so important. These litanies are self-examination results done by men and women who lived in a different age than ours and who knew how to examine hearts a lot better than us. And you know, sometimes when we read their words, they are like our doctors. (laughs) They are like our doctors who can poke here and there and all of a sudden we go, ouch! (laughs) Until they poked, we didn't know there was something that might be wrong. And you and I have periodically used the Southwell litany. I'm going to, I've taken two or three extracts from that. I want you to read that with me. But I don't want you to read it primarily as a confession right now. You can do that if you want. Who am I? The Holy Spirit may decide to do that for you. But I want you to listen to them as this is a doctor describing what could be wrong with us. And there will be things in there that I'm sure will speak to you about yourself. But you would never have thought of it unless I had brought it before you. This is more an illustration of self-examination. So, so pray this with me, but do, you're doing it primarily to focus on the actual words. From pride and self-will, from desire to have our own way in all things, from overweening love of our own ideas and blindness to the value of others, from resentment against opposition, from contempt for the claims of others, save us and help us, we humbly ask you, O Lord from all jealousy, whether of equals or superiors, from grudging others' success, from absence of submission and eagerness for authority, from all hasty words of impatience, from taunting words of sarcasm, from responding to others in irritation, from all infirmity of temper in provoking and being provoked, from love of unkind gossip, and from all idle words that may hurt others. Save us and help us, we humbly ask you, O Lord. From all arrogance in dealing with other people, from strife and partisanship and division among our fellow believers, from magnifying our certainties to condemn all differences, save us and help us, we humbly ask you, O Lord. I want to ask you a question. You don't need to tell me what it is. How many of you would say, I saw something about my heart that I wouldn't have if you hadn't made us walk through that? Okay, how many? Okay, this is a holier congregation than last night. But that's okay. (laughs) But you get the point. These litanies are so important. When we allow well-written, well-crafted people who have searched the human heart to shine a light on our own heart. So scripture, self-examination, and then one other area that often triggers true confession is corporate repentant times. We do this in solemn assembly. That's, That's where Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night. The first Sunday, Monday, Tuesday of every year. Where for three evenings in a row, we are doing these kinds of things. Uh, It's an opportunity for us, an entire congregation to allow God to speak to us. I remember an occasion when as an elders board we meet four times a year on a Saturday morning for prayer. Uh, One time we decided that we would start with the the Southwell Litany. That we would read one particular section and wait and have people pray and confess if they wanted to. And I had no idea how long that would take. Well, the entire three hours spent and we hadn't finished working our way through that. Uh, And uh, one young man was being mentored by one of our elders Told me that that's what the two of them are doing. They're working their way through the Southwell litany. So, scripture, self examination, corporate repentance times are some of the ways. There may be others that came to my mind what triggers true confession. All right, let me wrap this up. This is what we learned today. What is true confession? How do we move forward? What hoist, what sails do we hoist to move forward when we found ourselves having moved backward? An unvarnished acknowledgement of our sin, a desire for radical cleansing and renewal. A confidence regarding restoration to fruitful ministry. And what triggers it? Scripture, self-examination, and solemn assemblies, whether of 400 people or 12 people or 2 people. One more observation and with that I'm finished. Now because we worked our way through something like this, it doesn't mean it's over yeah, some some specific transgressions or sins that God may bring to our attention we need to deal with it thoroughly once and it's over and done with and it's finished but there are other things, the Bible calls them besetting sins those are things that we find ourselves being tripped up over and over and over again, they might be sexual sins, lust pornography, they might be debilitating anger that finds ourselves exploding in anger at various times when we shouldn't They could be the other sense, sense, greed, envy, gluttony, lust, whatever they may be. They don't go after one thorough confession. But that's okay. That's okay. This is a way back to God. We're on a journey. Some battles take months, weeks, months, and years, and decades before we win them. The key thing, though, is please never quit, don't ever give up. That's part of moving forward. And John White in his book Eros Defiled has a beautiful He's writing there in the context of sexual sins uh, but of lust and particular manifestations of it but it applies no matter what the sin is that you find yourself getting trapped in over and over again. And I trust it comes across as encouragement to you to persevere. It did to me. Humility does not rest upon bafflement and discouragement and self-disgust at our shabby lives or a brow-beaten, dog-slinking attitude. It rests upon the disclosure of the consummate wonder of God. That's why he begins, According to the multitudes of your mercy and your loving kindness, O God. Those are the first words he speaks. So refuse to let your failures cause you self-disgust. By all means groan, but take your shame to the throne of grace, where his blood will wash it away. Breathe a silent prayer or a not-so-silent prayer of forgiveness, and begin again just where you are. Offer this broken worship to him, saying, This is what I am, except thou aid me. Thank him too for the day when you will be master of your desires. Though it tarry, it will come as you let God be master in other areas of your life. Learn to laugh at your chains in faith. And I love that last phrase. Whoever is serious about their sins the way David was, can learn to laugh at our chains and continue to persevere until God breaks them completely. Here's my blessing for you. It's from Genesis chapter 1. May the Holy Spirit of God work in you to create a clean heart. At the very core of your being, may the inclinations and the dispositions of your life be towards holiness, justice and righteousness. May He give you a hatred of iniquity and a love of all that is good. And may the same Spirit of God give you a steadfast spirit That you will not only know what it is you've been called to do in the kingdom of God, but that you will be able to do it steadfastly as you are enabled by the Spirit. And then may He grant you a willing spirit that you might do it joyfully. Go in Jesus' name.